You know, this is one book, isn't it? It's one book. It has one story from beginning to end. And yet, since it's such a big book, we tend to divide it up, don't we? Help me out, those of you that have been walking with Christ for a while. How many Testaments are there in this big book? There are two. Well, we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. How many of you remember how many individual books are in this Bible? 66. There are 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. 66 books. We could even subdivide those, couldn't we? There's, there's books that have to do with history and books that have to do with wisdom and books that have to do with prophecy. We can divide this book up in a variety of ways, but you know, one thing I've been thinking about is what if we did it this way? I haven't seen this done before, but, but what if? What if we took all the pages that have to do with Paradise Lost, the, the, the first garden, the Garden of Eden, that that would take up, in most of our Bibles, the first three or four pages. And then take the paradise yet to be revealed, the new heavens and the new earth. And that would take up the last three or four pages. And everything, everything in between is a story of God's redemption. How he's taking us from paradise lost to paradise regained. Join me in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and this morning we're going to look at verses 20 through 24, and we want to see the very first steps that our original ancestors, Adam and Eve, took on their journey from paradise, from the Garden of Eden, into this era between the gardens, a journey that has been taken by every one of their descendants, including you and me, today, right now, you and I are in some sense following in the footsteps of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, and that we're making our way through this era between the gardens. I think gaining a better perspective on what happened to Adam and Eve as they took those first few steps into the era between the gardens, I think as we get a better understanding of what was going on there, will help us understand the status quo of the world we're living in. I heard an amusing definition of the term status quo one time. It stuck. Status quo is this mess we're in. <laughs> you know? And that, that came back to me as I was preparing to serve you today through, from this passage is this mess we're in. How, how did we get in this mess we're in and what hope is there that it will ever change? As I've been studying and meditating on this passage in Genesis 3 and related passages, the image that came to my mind is that of darkness. I even took some time to do some Google searches on famous paintings of these first few steps Adam and Eve took out of the Garden of Eden. And of course, these are the imaginations of the artist. But I was fascinated to see that in the Renaissance and even post-Renaissance, most of the painters of this scene painted in dark colors. Darkness. What do I mean? Well, there's not only darkness in this story, but I believe there's light. There's hope. There's hope fueling light in this passage. I'm going to try to explain it this way this morning. These four verses, 20, 21, I guess there's, yeah, there's more than that, isn't there? 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. I need help. Five verses. <laughs> in these verses, we see both darkness and light. We see despair and hope. Let's, let's talk about the bad news first. What do you say? Let's talk about that so we can move on to the good news. But in this passage, the bad news comes second. The, the good news comes first. And so I'm going to deliberately drop down to verse 22 and look at verses 22 through 24, the bad news, as Adam and Eve begin their journey into the darkness. Genesis 3, verse 22, the word of God says, then the Lord, Jehovah God, said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out with his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the sentence just abruptly breaks. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God made a painful and yet gracious decision about his image bearers. Adam and Eve were created by God to manage this perfect creation under the smile of God and for the smile of God, yet they had chosen, they had chosen to listen to the subtle schemes of the serpent and had chosen to disobey the good and gracious God. Adam and Eve were now sinners, fallen human beings. Something had to be done. Something had to be done about this divine likeness and now fallen humanity. Adam and Eve could have used their God-reflecting volition as God's image bearers to make their own decisions as fallen sinful beings. And yet they had neither the wisdom, the purity, or the strength to make God honoring decisions consistently any longer. The assumption in reading between the lines is that if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life, now that they are fallen, if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life, now that they are sinners, they would have lived forever in their fallenness. With all the ugly effects that would have on their bodies, with all the ugly effects that would have on their souls, as well as the damage they would do as fallen image bearers on the creation that they had been supposed to manage for God's glory. The result, had they stayed in the Garden of Eden and eaten of the Tree of Life as fallen human beings, would be disastrous beyond comprehension. So God decided to, to banish his image bears from the paradise he had designed for them. And the language here is rather stark. It's rather blunt. Adam and Eve weren't politely escorted to the door. They weren't, it wasn't suggested that they leave. Adam and Eve were exiled, excommunicated, banished, driven out from the Garden of Eden. They were expelled from all that they had enjoyed up until that point, Adam and Eve had enjoyed perfection. You think about it. Perfect beauty. Perfect provision. Perfect weather. Perfect relationship as husband and wife. But the best good thing, the goodest good thing, was their relationship with God. From the sounds of it, he would come in the cool of the day and walk with them and enjoy fellowship with them. And yet now, because of sin, that would be no more. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Instead of that intimacy with God, it would now be alienation from God. And I think this is a principle. It's a basic principle that's all through the books of the Bible, all through the Bible from cover to cover, is that sin alienates us from the perfect holy God who made us. Sin has that effect. And here we were designed to be in relationship with God, but sin drives us apart. Sin alienates us from the holy God who made us. And the Bible depicts that alienation, that, that worst bad thing, that alienation from God. It pictures it in the Bible as like a, a living death. One of the more famous verses in the Bible is what? The wages of sin. Some of you kids could help me with this one. The wages of sin is? It's death. Thank you for those adult voices that consider yourselves kids. The wages of sin is death. It's like a living death. Made to be in relationship with God, but now separated from him because of our sin. And so that day, God cleansed his temple garden. He cleansed his temple garden from sin and sinners. Not only did he banish Adam and Eve, but he, he fixed a barrier at the gate to the Garden of Eden. He set up these cherubim. Now cherubim are 
heavenly beings, angelic beings, who seem in the Bible, the few times we find them, they seem to have a particular, a particular a specific task of guarding the holiness of God. One place we see them is in the tabernacle and later the temple. Do some of you remember studying those parts of the Bible that talk about the tabernacle? That there were two rooms in the tabernacle. There was a front room. It took about two-thirds of the interior. It was a holy place. It was a holy place. But there was a back room, perfectly cubicle. 15 by 15 by 15, perfect cube. And it was reserved for only the high priest to go in there. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And only after he had purified himself and gone through a series of bloody sacrifices. There was a curtain that separated that most holy place from the holy place. Do any of you remember what was embroidered on that curtain? Cherubim. There were cherubim embroidered on that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Not only that. But in that most holy place, there was a place where God would come and meet with the people's representative, the high priest. It was known as the atonement seat or the place of appreciation, the mercy seat. And over that mercy seat, God had told Moses, make two pure gold cherubim that faced each other with their wings touching. The cherubim are pictured in the Bible as guarding God's holiness. And here is God's expelling his now sinful image bearers from the garden he had made for them, he sets up these cherubim as guards. Not only that, but little that we know about it, but it says that there was a flaming, spinning sword. Now, whether we can picture that clearly or not, the message is clear, isn't it? Adam and Eve, access denied. You are not allowed in here any longer in your fallenness. You cannot just barge back into the Garden of Eden because you want to. You cannot claw your way back to relationship with God. Sinful Adam, sinful Eve, you are as of today banished from the Garden of Eden. And so Adam and Eve took those first terrifying steps into the darkness of that era between the gardens. If you're familiar with those first few chapters of Genesis, particularly chapters 2 and 3, you'll know that God made them to manage to the Garden of Eden like God's prince and princess. But rather than being satisfied with their regal roles as God's prince and princess, they wanted listening to Satan. They thought it'd be better to just be God. And so they went for it all. They went for it all. Satan convinced them, why not have it all? Why not be your own God? And in their grasp at having everything, Godness, they lost everything. They lost everything. Their access to this pure and perfect world God had created for them. Frustration, free work. Good food peaceful relationships with the rest of creation, sweet relationship with God. They lost it all. And so they enter the era between the gardens, I believe, groaning. Can you hear them groaning? Can you hear Adam groaning, sweaty and frustrated at how hard it was to do his work? Thorns and thistles. Can you hear Eve groaning? Can you hear? Some of you ladies that have born children can. Can you hear Eve groaning as she carries Cain and then Abel and Seth and then the many other brothers and sisters that followed? Can you hear her groaning as she delivers each child in turn? Can you... Can you imagine the depth of grief, the, the depth of pain, the groaning as Adam and Eve came across the bloodied body of their son, Abel, 
and realized that it was his brother that killed him. They lost two sons that day. Can you imagine the parents' grief as they groaned when they realized that death has come to humanity. Death has come to our family. Death has come to our son. Can you hear them groaning? Can you hear them groaning as they lay on their bed at night? Why why did we do it? Why did we listen to the serpent? Why did we choose to disobey our good and gracious God? What have we done? Oh, how I miss our walks with him. Oh, how I miss our conversations. And all of creation groans. Adam and Eve groaned. But in their groaning, there's good news. In the bad news of this dark era that they're entering, the garden, the era between the gardens, they entered the darkness of that era between the gardens with a, with a, a light fueling hope. How do, how do I know that? Well, let's look at the two verses we skipped. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Let's back up. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. There's hope in those two verses. I, I see at least two sources of hope in those verses. There's, there's hope in the promise of God. Adam called his wife's name Eve. Now, he had previously given her her generic name. Whenever God presented her to him on that day of her making, that day of their wedding, remember Adam in his excited voice said, she shall now be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Adam gave her this honorable title that she's like me. But she's different too. Viva la difference. That God gave Adam the privilege of giving his wife her generic name of woman. But now on this time of expulsion, Adam gives his wife a personal name. He calls her Eve. Now it's fascinating that the name Eve sounds a whole lot like the Hebrew word for life. It sounds a whole lot like the word for life. You know, Adam could have given his wife probably any name he wanted. And yet there, as they face expulsion from the Garden of Eden, as they make their first steps into the darkness of the era between the gardens, Adam looks at his wife and he says, I'm going to call you from now on life giver. I'm going to call you life giver. And either Adam or Moses later, as he wrote the book of Genesis, gave the explanation. Because she shall be the mother of all the living. Now let me just give you a quick, quick reminder of the sequence of events here. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, how many kids had they? They didn't have any. She wasn't even pregnant yet. I know that because verse 4.1 tells us that. Eve wasn't even pregnant yet. For the first time. She wasn't even pregnant yet. And yet, Adam looks at his wife and he says, I'm going to call you life giver. Now, that tells me something about Adam's view of God, not just his wife. Now, on a lesser note, on a smaller note, you can say, well, Adam had true faith that they would live long enough to have children. And, and that makes sense. Because if you remember in, in chapter 3, a little bit earlier, when God talk to Eve, he said that you will have pain in childbearing. You will have pain in childbearing. And so Adam knew that promise of God that they would have kids. So my assumption is that Adam logicized through that and thought, well, what the previous verse say in verse 19? You are dust and to dust you shall return. Adam knew he was going to die. He didn't know when, 
but he knew he was going to die. But when he reflected back on God's promise that Eve would have children, even though it would be painful, Adam apparently logicized, well, we must be going to live long enough to have kids. So death is coming, but it's not here yet. So maybe that's one reason why he gave his wife the name Life Giver. But I think there's more to it than that. I really do. I think there's more to it than that. Do you remember in chapter 3, verse 15, if you don't, let your eyes drift back to that verse. God is speaking directly to the serpent. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That passage is sometimes referred to as the first gospel. The first gospel in the whole Bible. That in 3.15, God gives Adam and Eve this, indirectly, he gives them this promise that one day there would be someone born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. And I believe that when Adam named his wife Life Giver, that this was in his mind. That one day God will send a serpent crusher. One day, God will come and destroy our enemy, and that there will be new life in him. So Adam and Eve enter into the darkness of this era between the garden, and yes, it is dark, and yet they entered the garden of Eden having the light of this promise from God that one day he will send a serpent crusher. That gave Adam enough hope of light-fueling hope to name his wife Life Giver. Now, I can't read your mind. I'm not even going to try. I've been trying for 48 years to read one person's mind, and I don't always get it right. But if I'm right in reading Adam's mind here, <laughs> that that's the promise that he was hanging on to. Some of you might be thinking, well, Larry, that seems like an awfully small promise. I mean, it's not even a whole sentence. I mean, it's just this... this part of a sentence in one verse in the Bible and you're saying that was enough for Adam to have hope as he entered the darkness of the era between the gardens that was enough yes you know as I was reflecting on this I was this is a personal side of the McCall's home I guess I like a lot of guys in my age bracket I have to get up once during the night and um, only once <laughs> depends on the night <laughs> And do you know what keeps me from stumbling in the darkness as I make the way to the master bathroom? Anybody want to guess what keeps me from stumbling? We have this little nightlight in our bathroom. It's just, it's just a little nightlight. But you know what? It's enough light to keep me from stumbling. I, I can see well enough to make my way. And even though this is just a seemingly small promise, it's not even a whole verse. Nevertheless, it's a act of God's kindness to Adam, that he's giving Adam and Eve this understanding that this isn't the end. This isn't the end. The air between the gardens is not the last chapter. It might be a long chapter, but it's not the last chapter, that the day's going to come when I'm going to send the seed of the woman to come and crush the serpent's head, even though he himself has his heel bruised. So Adam had this light-fueling hope in his heart as he entered the darkness of the air between the gardens. But there's a second reason for hope, and that's in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, made for Adam and his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. How does that bring hope? How does that bring them light for their journey through the dark era? You folks that have been here through this series with us, when Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately felt guilt and shame for their sinfulness. And what did they do? They hid, but they did something else. You kids that are in the room, help me remember. What else did Adam and Eve do besides trying to hide behind the trees? What did they do when they heard God coming? What did they sow? They, yeah, I heard some little kids whispering to their parents. 
They sewed fig leaves together. They sewed fig leaves together. And apparently, in their sense of shame, we've disobeyed God. We did what he told us not to do. In their shame and guilt, they felt like we need to, we feel so exposed, we feel so naked, we need to hide, we need to cover ourselves. They took fig leaves and made for themselves these loincloths. So they could apparently try to hide their shame from God. How'd that work out? How long was God fooled by fig leaves? Not for a nanosecond, was he? Not for a nanosecond. You know, I think we've all been tempted at times when we read this account in Genesis, think, Adam and Eve, come on. And we almost feel like laughing, you know, like, are you kidding me? You're going to hide from God behind fig leaves? My friend, before we laugh too hard, can I just ask you, how many times you and I have reached for fig leaves? How many times when we're aware of our own sinfulness have we reached for the fig leaf of some excuse? Couldn't help but I was tired or blame shifting. You're the one that made me do it. Or maybe we try some more socially acceptable fig leaf and say, well, maybe if I'm more generous at Christmas time, God will think I'm a better person. Or maybe, you know, maybe if I'm just get back to church and get more religious. And you know what all those things are? They're fig leaves. It's our own attempt, our own attempt to cover ourselves, to cover our sin and our shame. Now, I'm not trying to be difficult here. But pastorally, I feel a need to at least insert a comment that we are living in a culture right now that has almost lost this sense of sinning against God. This idea that people sin against God is almost never talked about. And if anyone says, I, I feel so ashamed, what do we do? What is the tendency in our culture when someone says, I feel so ashamed for what I've done? I feel so guilty for what I've done. Well, we, we try to get them medication or we try to get them therapy. We try to convince them, you're, you're really not that bad. I mean, there's a lot of people that are worse than you. You're not a bad person. You're a good person. And we try to either medicate or, or through therapy help them, help dull their sense of shame and guiltiness. And the vertical understanding that, that we've sinned against a holy God. It's like that whole concept is, is deliberately forgotten in our culture. And sin is now treated with medication and therapy instead of repentance and forgiveness. But you see, God clothed Adam and Eve. He clothed them. He acknowledged their sin and shame. He acknowledged their guilt. When God clothed them, he wasn't saying, oh, come on, you're good people. You, I know you didn't mean it, you know. You were just having a hard day. A hard day in the Garden of Eden? Come on. I mean, God acknowledged their sin. He acknowledged their guilt, their shame, by providing for them garments of animal skins. Now, let me ask some logical questions here, maybe some obvious questions. Where did those skins come from? Animals. I'm guessing at least two. I mean, maybe there was one animal that had to die so there'd be enough leather to cover Adam and a second one to cover his wife Eve. But one or two minimum animals died because of Adam and Eve's sin. And, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but my imagination goes sometimes. And I, I've wondered, I've wondered, did Adam and Eve watch God slaughtering those animals? Can you imagine? Can you imagine watching God kill innocent animals to clothe you because of your shame? And yet God killed that animal or those animals to cover Adam and to cover Eve in their guilt and shame. 
And that was an act of God's grace. That was an act of God's grace. God revealed his gracious character as he did that. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And I, I can imagine Adam and Eve going out into the darkness of that era between the gardens. And, and they had that life-fueling hope in their hearts that God was going to send a serpent crusher. But there was another reason, another life-giving, light-giving reason for hope in their hearts. And that was the character of God. When they would look down at themselves and see these leather tunics and to realize that's there because, not only there because of my sin, but it's there because God is a gracious God and he's covered our guilt and our shame. And so they had this light fueling hope in their hearts that God, God's character is out of a gracious God. And so Adam and Eve make their way into the darkness of this era between the garden. Yes, groaning because of the pain of living in a fallen world, but having in their hearts hope that God would keep his promises and that God will act according to his grace. And you look through the Old Testament. I said the first few pages are paradise lost. The last few pages are paradise regained. And everything in between is the story of God's redemption, getting us from one to the other. And as you read the Bible, you see that little nightlight I mentioned. You see that little light. It's like a dimmer switch. And it just keeps getting turned up brighter and brighter and brighter as you read the plan of redemption. And it was difficult for me as a preacher to try to decide what passages should I share with the folks on Sunday. But my mind went to prophecies in Isaiah. In Isaiah, this is 700 years before the babe of Bethlehem. 700 years before, God spoke through Isaiah these words. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then dropping down a little bit later in the same chapter, and you know these at Christmas time, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And then we move ahead. Another 700 years and the dimmer switch gets turned up again. And John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, sings a song. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then 33 years later, Jesus himself standing there in Jerusalem at the Festival of Lights, and pronounces unequivocally, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Adam and Eve and the old covenant descendants after them, even into the New Testament era, rested their hope in the promises and the character of God. And even though the living life in this era between the gardens was dark and painful, they lived in that darkness, not as children of darkness, but as children of light, because of the hope they had in the promises of God and in the character of God. The promises of God that he would send the serpent crusher, and the character of God that he would treat his people with grace. So what does that have to do with you and me? 
Here we are, if I can borrow C.S. Lewis's term, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And like our ancestors, we too are making our way through this dark era between the gardens. And we groan, don't we? We groan. I, I don't find myself, the older I get, appreciating very much the plastic smiles of, praise the Lord anyway. <laughs> Life can be hard. This past week, I presided at the funeral of a family that I love, and it was the third funeral I've done for this family, or fourth maybe. I think how many times are we going to go to the cemetery with these folks? We're still living. We're still living in the era between the gardens. We're still living in this fallen world. We groan. What, what do you groan about? You don't have to answer this out loud, but I'm going to guess walking this same fallen world that you do. Some of you maybe came today groaning about frustrations with your work, either at home or your place of employment. For you students, groaning about finals coming up this week. Sorry, didn't mean to bring that up. Or maybe you're groaning over some sickness you or a loved one is dealing with. or some injury you've incurred. Some of you are groaning because of economic challenges you're facing or broken relationships or wayward children, the death of loved ones, or maybe even the thought of your own upcoming death. And we groan. There is a biblical groaning. And in our groaning, what do we need? What do we really need? And this needs clarified because of the world we live in. When we groan over the frustrations, the pain of living in the fallen world, the air between the gardens, we need more than just more education, more information. We need more than more stuff, more therapy, more self-help advice. What we need is rescued from the darkness. We need someone to rescue us from this darkness that we're living in. And if you track phrases in the Bible about darkness and light, you find your soul encouraged as a believer. Let me just pick several with you. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, or one of my favorite passages in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That if you're here today as a believer, there was a day when God shone his life-giving light into your dark soul so that when the lights came on, you could see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And where before that you didn't care for him, now you saw him as beautiful and desirable and the longing of your soul is, I want him, I want Christ. God's light shone into you. Or Paul's comment in Ephesians 5.8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And we could pick others, but for sake of time, you see it, don't you? In this era between the gardens, we still groan. We still have tears on our cheeks, and that's okay. I think it is okay for Christians to live at times with tears on our cheeks. But what distinguishes us from our BC days, what distinguishes us from our unsafe friends and family members is this. Though they have tears on their cheeks and we have tears on our cheeks, one thing we have that they don't have, at least not yet, is hope in our hearts. We have light fueling hope in our hearts. Where do we get this hope? Where do we get this life fueling hope to guide us on our journey through this era between the gardens? Where do we get it? Well, my friends, we get it the same place Adam and Eve did. We get it from the promises of God and the character of God. And the Bible is full of prophecies and promises to fuel that hope in our hearts that as we continue our journey and we feel the pain, we feel the pain of living in a fallen world, we, we nevertheless don't grieve the way the world does. 
because of this hope we have. Hope in his promises, and, and there are a plethora. There, there's a treasure of promises from the mouth of our good and gracious God. But some of those have to do with what he's going to do, that we can lock our hearts onto, we can fix our eyes on the coming day. And I think of Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And there are times when you feel like the attacks of Satan are so strong that he's, he's depressing your soul and you say, away from me. I don't belong to you. And I know your end because my father told me what he's going to do to you. He's going to throw you down. That day's coming, serpent. That day's coming, enemy. A little bit later in the book of Revelation. 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We know that's true. We know that's coming. God, our, our Father has promised us, I will, I will bring an end to this suffering. I will bring an end to this darkness of the air between the gardens. This is not the last chapter. And le let me just say that if we lose sight of the coming day, if we lose sight of the fulfillment of God's promises, our temptation is to live like this is all there is. And so what we do is we do what the world does, and we go and we try to find some sense of solace, some sense of peace, some sense of, of happiness, some sense of protection from this in the world or that in the world. And some people seek it in things, and some people seek it in pleasure, and some people seek it in fame. All these different things that I need this to get me through. I need this to get me through. No, you don't. You have the promises of God to lock your heart onto and say, I know he's coming back. I know he's going to put an end to all this evil. He's going to one day kill death itself. There won't be any more funerals. We can say goodbye to goodbyes. And we can fix our hearts on that. And that gives light to us on our journey in the darkness. But we also lock our hearts not only onto the promises of God, but onto the very character of God. That if you're here today as a Christian, in what are you clothed? I, I want to ask, in whom are you clothed? The Bible says in several places we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Colossians, no, Galatians. Galatians 3.27 says, As many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. One of the most phenomenal dynamics of being a Christian is this. When our Holy Father looks at us Christians, what does he see? Or should I ask, who does he see? There's an old chorus that we sang here at CCC many years ago. You can still find it online. It says, when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. That we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What right? What right do you have to stand before a holy God? Any of you. What right do you have to stand before a holy God? You, you don't claim your own merits. You don't say, well, God, I've, I've tried hard. I did my best. My theology was correct. I was a good citizen. I was generous. I was kind. God, smile at me. Those are fig leaves. Those are fig leaves. But when God himself, not we clothing ourselves, when he clothes us, he clothes us in the perfect garments of his own son. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And do you know what we have now? There are certain moments in history that strike me as, oh, shine the light on that one. Shine the light on that moment. That was not just a page turner. That one was a chapter turner. And you know one of them that I think of is when Jesus died on the cross just outside the walls of Jerusalem that day. Do you know what happened just a couple hundred yards away in the temple in Jerusalem? Do you know what happened in the temple in that moment that Jesus died? What happened to the curtain? It was torn. How was it torn? From top to bottom. Do you see it? Do you feel the weight of that? What was on that curtain? What was on that curtain? 
cherubim. Stay out. Stay out. You cannot approach a holy God on your own terms. You cannot come in here as a sinner on your own terms. Stay out. Access denied. But when Jesus died on that cross for the sins of his people, God the Father, as it were, reached down from heaven and went, rip! And the author of Hebrews says, therefore, let us enter in with boldness. Seeking grace and mercy in our time of need. And God the Father says, come to me. Just like he did with Adam and Eve before the fall. He now says to us as his redeemed people, come to me. I have clothed you in the righteousness of my son. And you are free to enter my holy presence. You fix your heart on that. You hang on that as you continue this journey in the air between the gardens. And one day he's coming back, isn't he? Mm. Don't you love that hymn that Charles Wesley wrote that says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ through Christ my own. When Jesus comes back, he's going to restore all things. And that not only will paradise lost be paradise regained, but it'll be even better because there won't be the potentiality of another fall. I would encourage you, if you're struggling with living in this area between the gardens, to remember the chapter that is yet to be lived in that last chapter. You can read about it in the last few pages of the Bible. Let me just read to you some passages that should stir your heart, fuel your life, to continue on with hope in your heart as you make your way through the darkness. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5 John the Apostle writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen to this. Does this remind you of the Garden of Eden? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, seated on the throne. <clears throat> it's this good stuff. These tears will get wiped away. <clears throat> he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, <clears throat> I'm making all things new. A little later on in that same chapter, <clears throat> I'll just read part of it for the sake of my voice. And I said, and I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. But then let me just jump ahead to chapter 22, the very last chapter in our Bible. <clears throat> If you've not read the last chapter for a while, make some time today. Make some time today to read the last chapter of the Bible and ask yourself, how does this all end? It ends glorious. It's like the beginning of the end when you read it. It says in Revelation 22, and the angel showed me, listen to the, listen to the Edenic language here. Thank you for your patience. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, do you see it? The tree of life. And its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God made Adam and Eve to be his prince and princess. 
And he's redeemed us to fulfill that ourselves. That is redeemed image bearers that in eternity we will reign with Christ. Reign over this created order. Under his smile and for his smile. Isn't that glorious? There will be nothing accursed. That's why we sang this morning. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So as we take a step back and look at this significant passage about those first steps into the era between the gardens, let me talk first of all to those of you that are already believers. It's okay to have tears on your cheeks, friends. It's an acknowledgement that we live in a fallen world. If you're weeping over a wayward child, or mourning at the grave of a loved one, or dealing with some sickness that is taking away your energy, your future, it's okay to cry. It's okay to groan. It's part of living in this era between the gardens. Romans 8 reminds us that we too groan. But we don't groan as those who have no hope. But though we have tears on our cheeks, we have hope in our hearts because we have, by God's grace, fixed our eyes on the promises of God and the character of God. And I want to encourage you, as a friend and as one of your pastors, to grow in your understanding of the promises and character of God. It's going to mean that you spend time in his book looking for him. What can I learn about him, his character, his promises? And you find yourself growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For those of you here today who are not yet believers, I just want to politely but boldly ask you, would you please abandon your attempt to cover your shame with fig leaves? Not only are they not adequate, they're offensive to God. He's not fooled, so please don't try to fool him. Abandon, repent of your attempts to cover yourself, your own sin and shame, and go to him in humility and say, would you cover me with the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ? Would you save me because of what he's done on my behalf? And he's a good and gracious God, and he will.